When I was growing up as a kid in a King Davis Missionary Baptist Church, number two, because there's a number one in town as well, there was a song that used to be sung amongst, uh, in, in the choir that I always loved. It was a simple song. Um, maybe you've heard the song, Have a Little Talk with Jesus. Tell them all about your troubles. Hear our fainted cry, answer by and by. Feel a little prayer wheel turning, know a little fire is burning. Find a little talk with Jesus, makes it right. You know, as I grew older and learned more theology and doctrine, my mind grew more complex and I lost some, and I lose sometimes, I feel the appreciation for the simple song. Simple words, but no truer words have ever been spoken. Talking with Jesus does, in fact, make things all right. This is basically the, the point of James in the latter part of this chapter. As he concludes this series that, or this letter that he has written to the church, and as we conclude this series, he's talked about um, greed and pride and the essence of Kingdom wisdom, which is the forsaking of greed and the forsaking of pride. He's talked about divisions and how divisions are started, partiality and, and, and seeing people as less than and treating people as less than based on what they possess or based on their positions in life. And yet at the end of this, out of all the things that James could have closed out on and, 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 and kind of and kind of set, 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 the, set the whole precedent for the entire book, the entire letter, James decides to close on a word about prayer. You see, prayer is vital in the life of the Christian. This series is about the living faith, and nothing is more essential in your faith than prayer. And so James takes a moment to speak about prayer. How important do you believe prayer is in your own life? How do you view prayer? When you think about all of the different commandments in Scripture, speaking well and, and greed and pride and making sure that you keep those things at bay, where is prayer on the list for you as a Christian? I also find it very interesting that that, that prayer takes a, such a prominent role in such a practical book. When you think about this practical book, oftentimes prayer is the thing that we think is impractical. I mean, we think about doing things and we think about thinking about things. And when it's time, when it's time to make a decision in life, we've thought, we, we've, we've performed. And then somebody says, well, have you prayed? And we say, well, I mean, yeah, I've prayed. But we don't think prayer is necessarily essential to the process of life, life movements, life decisions. And yet, in this very practical book, James makes the decision to close on prayer, something that most of us would think to be impractical. James opens this discussion about prayer by asking a series of questions. The first question is, is anyone among you Suffering. Is anyone among you suffering? What kind of suffering should we ask? 
if we are to take these verses that, that, that preceded this, this letter, then we know there are several types of sufferings that James could be pointing to. James could be pointing to, for example, the suffering that comes when we experience economic hardship. You see, in the, in the, first, in the first half of this chapter, James deals with or gives warnings to the wealthy. And he speaks about how the wealthy treated those that, that, those that were under their management, those that were under their care. And so James talks about economic exploitation. In other words, you can suffer based on the hardships that come with fi finances. And so James, when he says, are you suffering? Is anyone among you suffering? We obviously could think about those that are suffering because they've lost their job. We could think about those that are suffering because they were overlooked time and time again for promotions that would, would possibly put food on the table in ways that they have yet to put food on the table. We could think about those that are working tirelessly, and yet when they look at the, look at the list of bills in their lives and look at the check, the check never seems to be enough for the bills. James says, are you suffering? He's talking to them. He's talking to you. But there's other types of suffering that James could be highlighting. For example, in chapter 5, the early half of chapter 5, James mentions the persecution that the prophets suffered. The prophets that spoke courageously and spoke valiantly, both to the powers that be and at times to their own people. They spoke truth when truth was inconvenient. And because they spoke truth when truth was inconvenient, the Bible says they suffered. Many of them suffered. Many of them suffered death. Many of them suffered abuse. Many of them suffered ridicule endlessly. But nevertheless, they suffered. So some suffering comes when we take courageous stands for righteousness. You know, we are often told that if we take a stand for God, that it would all always work out. But that, that sentence is often incomplete. Insufficient. You see, if you take a stand for God, it will always work out after a while. That one, that, those two words mean everything. Because sometimes it doesn't work out exactly when we want it to. Sometimes we may come to the end of our life and we are still waiting for it to work out. Some people die in anticipation of the working out. And yet at the end, it worked out. And so James could be talking to you as you are in your life day to day, trying to take courageous stands, trying to take bold stands and speak truth in the midst of a world that doesn't want to hear it, whether it be the powers that be, whether it be your own families. And he could be asking you, is there anyone among you that are suffering? But James also could be talking to those of you who might not be suffering economically and might not be suffering persecution in, uh, in, in your own homes or amongst your own families or amongst your own people, but you could be nevertheless suffering. And you could be suffering in ways that you, don't, you can't even describe the origins. You don't even know where the suffering started and why the suffering started. You just know right now you're in the midst of great turmoil and great pain 
You see, Job, who James references in the early part of chapter 5, was, a, was such a man that experienced suffering just like that. There was no necessary reason here on earth in which Job could point to and find his source and his origin and his reason for suffering. And yet he suffered. Suffered the loss of his children, suffered the loss of his property, suffered the loss of his health and his strength. Suffered for reasons that he couldn't even explain. And maybe that's you. Maybe you find yourself in the midst of suffering that you have no explanation for. That you don't even understand and you don't even know why you're suffering. James says to those people as well, is there anyone among you who are suffering? For those who would answer yes, what is the typical response to suffering? The typical response to suffering too often is we tend to disengage from God. We tend to, we tend to push back from the table in which we are supposed to be feasting from. We tend to run. We tend to hide. And we sulk. And we murmur. And we complain. And we moan. But here James is speaking to those natural tendencies to run and to hide in the midst of suffering. And he says, is there anyone among you who are suffering? And to that he gives the response, pray. In other words, don't take the natural tendency to run from God. Instead, move against the flesh and move against the tendencies of your, your, your natural wayward heart and run to God in that hour in which you are suffering. You know, there are times in which we don't understand the reason why we call suffering trials and why we call suffering tests. But you see, saying suffering is called trials and suffering is called tests because in those moments of suffering, our foundations are exposed. You see where you are. You see where you place your hope in the midst of suffering. And many times when you feel that, when you feel that tendency to run, when you feel that tendency to self-medicate, when you feel that tendency to run to endless hours of YouTube or endless hours of social media or endless hours of Netflix to try to, to try to cope the pain, what you're doing is you're exposing yourselves in terms of where your hope truly lies. Suffering is a test. Suffering is a trial to show you where your hope truly lies. We can sing with maximum confidence that, that on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We can only sing that with maximum confidence when all other ground has been, when has been moved from us. All other ground has sunk underneath us. And there is only the ground of Christ left. It's in those hours where we see where our faith and our hope truly is. And so James is asking in this, in this text, where is your faith? 
Is there anyone among you who are suffering? Let them pray. Let them pray. Let them pray and run to God. And what exactly do we find in those moments of, what do we pray for, rather, in those moments of suffering that we experience? Two things. You pray for deliverance, and you pray for comfort. You pray for deliverance, and you pray for comfort. You pray for deliverance, for example, because think about it. There are moments where, where God does deliver. We see the Hebrew boys who, who obviously were in the fiery furnace, the story that we all know, and God brought them out of the fiery furnace. We see Daniel who was in the lion's den that we all know, and God brought him out of the lion's den. We see the children of Israel who were enslaved in Egypt, and God did, he did what? He delivered them from Egypt in captivity. But we also see Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 who pleads with God three times, take this thorn in the flesh away from me. He pleads for deliverance. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. In other words, Paul, the thorn isn't going anywhere. And so what does Paul do? Paul, instead of praying for deliverance, once he realizes that deliverance is no longer coming, he switches to comfort. He says instead, he says, okay, well then, Lord, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, hardships, insults, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, if the Lord won't deliver me, then Lord, give me comfort through the storm. Give me comfort through the suffering. Give me peace in the midst of the calamity. Help me center my trust and my hope in you through the hardships. Do you understand? You pray for deliverance, and if deliverance never comes, you still pray for comfort, that the Lord would rise up mightily and boldly in you so that the, so that the world might see that Jesus is real through the way you walk through your suffering. James also asks another question. Is there anyone cheerful? Is there anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. You see, he's still talking about prayer. And he's talking about a different type of prayer. He's talking about a prayer that is filled with joy in our hearts. A prayer that is often sung, like the songs we sang earlier this morning. He's talking about Praise. Let him sing praise if anyone is cheerful. You know, the reason why it's important that James points to this ideal of singing praise if we are cheerful, because oftentimes we can be cheerful and still miss God. We can be joyful and still miss God. In fact, there are times we can be joyful and attribute that joy to our own success and our own accomplishment and our own ability in our own wisdom, in our own intellect. We can be joyful because provision has been made in our home and never ring out praise to God because we are thinking that that provision is a result of our work and our work alone. And so James says when we are suffering, yes, let's pray, let's turn to God, but also when you are joyful, 
Let's praise God. Never, never forget why you have what you have. Never forget why the provision has, uh, that's been made has been made. That's what praise does. It reminds us over and over and over again that it is Jesus who makes provision. That it is God the Father who has given us all things in which we enjoy. And so never forget to praise. Amen. James turns his, his thoughts on prayer to the sick in verse 14. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them Pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James, in this, in this passage, is speaking about a number of different things. For example, the ideal of oil. You know, some people have different thoughts in terms of what the oil, what the oil actually, what purpose does it serve in this text? Some people believe it to be medicinal alone, that, that, that there was a healing property in oil. So like rubber tussin, just put it on everything, take it for everything, right? And so people thought that the olive oil had a medicinal property to it. And so when James is speaking of bringing the oil, that he's possibly pointing to this idea that this oil brought healing. But then there are other people who believe that this ideal of oil is actually that there is something to this oil. That there is power embedded in this oil. Almost like holy water, in a sense, for the Catholic Church. But then there are other people that believe that this oil is more so symbolic. That there is, an, that there is a property of obedience that comes with this oil. As you see throughout the, uh, throughout the Old Testament, you see kings are anointed with oil. You see others who are ill anointed with oil. You see oil as a property uh, or, or a, as a prevalent element in a lot of Old Testament thought. But it's probably more so symbolic than it is there's actually something in it that is going to heal the person. What's actually healing the person is God and God alone. In the same way, when you go into the waters of baptism, who is saving you is God, not the waters. Does that make sense? The same way when we drink the communion or we drink the, the, the wine and we eat the bread, it is not the wine and the bread in which, that, in which has redeemed us, right? But it is God who has redeemed us, and it is he that we are looking to in the midst of our partaking. And so the same thing can be said of this ideal of the oil. We bring the oil as a symbolic element in our prayer over the sick. But he says when you come and you pray that you bring those who are responsible for the care of those, uh, the, those in the church. And that, that would be the elders. The elders are responsible for the care. So it is only right that the elders should take charge when they see those that are sick and come and pray for them. They are showing their care. They are showing their compassion. They are showing their concern. But here's where I want to focus on. I want to focus on the ideal of, of, that's found in verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. How often do you pray with faith? How easy is it, how easy is for you, how easy is it for you to casually cast all of your prayers on the sovereignty of God and to exercise no faith? And praying. Well, God, if he's going to do it, he's going to do it. 
And how easy is it to subtly, for that subtly to become a cop-out for a lack of faith? You see, when Jesus, when Jesus was on the water and Peter bid him to, can, can I come out to the water to meet with you? And he went out to the water. Remember what happened. There was a lack of faith involved in Peter when he saw the winds and he saw the waves. And, and then he began to sink. God was sovereign, and yet Peter began to sink. Why? Because he doubted. Remember Jesus said to us that if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. Brothers and sisters, there is something to be said to praying, yes, praying that God is sovereign, but praying that God, and praying in a way that you say, I have faith that my God can do whatever he desires to do and whatever he wants to do. Not praying with this sort of resolve where you're saying, well, you know, God, if, he, if God's going to do it, he's going to do it. But in the back of your mind, you've already, you've already resorted to the reality or you've already conceded to the reality that he's not going to do it. Have you ever thought about, have you ever prayed like that? Any, anybody ever prayed, well, Lord, if you're going to do it, I, I know you can do it if you want to, but you're already in the back of your mind saying he's not going to do it. That's not prayers of faith, saints. Prayers of faith are going to the Lord and petitioning the Lord and saying, God, I am confident that you are God. And I am confident that you hear the cries of your people. I am confident that you answer the prayers of your people. And so I am praying, Lord, to you that you would move in our, on our behalf. Now, with that being said, James is not saying in this text that that is in some way pushing aside the sovereignty of God. You see, John 14 and 14 says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The key words being in my name, meaning that we are always subject to the sovereignty of God when we pray. But nevertheless, John 14 and 14, Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, with faith and trusting my sovereignty, I will do it. And sometimes, saints, I believe that our prayers are, an, are not answered, not because, God is, uh, not because God has refused us in his sovereignty. Sometimes I believe our prayers are not answered because we pray without faith. When you pray, are you praying a prayer of faith? When you pray, are you taking your prayers with boldness to God and saying, God, I know that you can do this, and I know that you are listening to me. And so, God, answer my prayer in accordance to your will. Faith is a great prayer enhancer. But there is a prayer blocker in this text as well. Look at verse 16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This is one of the least favorite connections in all of Scripture. The connection between sin and healing. Sin and sickness. And James makes this connection in this text. You see, there are plenty of other places where this connection is established in Scripture. One of the clearest connections is, is in the passage found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage in which sets the table for us when we think about the Lord's Supper. You see, in that passage, Paul says that there are many among you who have not examined the body and the, the, body and the blood of our Lord rightly when you come to the Lord's table to partake of his supper. 
when you eat of the bread and you drink of the wine, you're not thinking about the redemption of Jesus Christ. You're coming to fill your belly. And because of that, Paul says, there are some of you who are ill, and there are some who have even died. In other words, the sin of not rightly dividing the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has led to the illness of some. We see even in the New Testament in Acts chapter 13 where there's this false prophet who is obstructing the work of, of the apostles. And the apostle Paul pronounces judgment on that false prophet. And what happens to him? He's temporarily blinded. His sin is connected to his sickness. But it's not just New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament as well. For example, we see in the Old Testament King Azariah who out of his prideful disobedience is stricken with leprosy. We see King Uzziah, who out of his prideful disobedience is stricken with leprosy. And so the Bible makes it abundantly clear that egregious sin can cause sickness. We also see in Scripture how sin can obstruct your prayers. One such place in Scripture is 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter says to the church, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, you can live with your spouse in such a relationally broken sort of way that you can hinder the answering of your prayer. Here, we were thinking the reason we didn't get that job is because we may have missed an interview question. Or here, we were thinking that the reason we didn't get that job was, was because we didn't take the training that we thought we should have taken. When possibly, the reason why you didn't get the job is because you were living in toxic relationships. So we see that sin can be the source of sickness. And sin can be the source of answered prayer going or, or prayers going unanswered. And it is for this reason that James says in James chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In the midst of the praying passage, James says, confess your sins one to another. James is helping us understand that a very, very important part of our prayer life is our examination life. It's looking over our lives. It's asking the Lord to search our hearts. James is making it plain that a very important part of our prayer life is the confession life. Openly confessing our sins one to another when we cross one another wrong, being willing to say, I was wrong. Forgive me. Being willing to seek so being willing to go to God, seeking forgiveness, but also repentance, saying, Lord, I'll turn from that sin. He is saying this is a part of the prayer life. You can't separate prayer from examination. You can't separate prayer from confession. You can't separate prayer from repentance. As you are praying, saints, I encourage you to take inventory and ask yourself, Am I pursuing to love those around me in healthy ways? Am I pursuing to love those around me and to love God in healthy ways? And when I'm not pursuing that, Lord, forgive me. 
and help me turn in such a way where I will pursue that. You know, Jesus drives this point further in Matthew chapter 5. Remember, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if, if, if you have an offering at the altar, and you remember at the altar with your offering that there is a brother, there is a sister who has grief with you, or who has beef with you, who has a grievance with you. He says, if you remember that, in that hour, in that moment, leave your offering there at the altar. Go and be reconciled with that brother. Go and be reconciled with that sister. Then come and offer your offering. If you remember not that, not that you have something against a brother or sister, if you remember that a brother or sister has something against you, leave the offering. Rise from your prayers. Go and reconcile with your brother and sister. Then return back to the altar. Why? Because that toxicity can, in fact, hinder the prayers that you are offering. A healthy and mature prayer life is not possible with an unhealthy relational life. A healthy and mature prayer life is not possible with an unhealthy relational life. If all of your relationships are toxic, then you are, in fact, obstructing prayers, according to Jesus and according to Peter. Now, let me give you this caveat about sin. Sin isn't the only reason for sickness. There could be, in fact, moments where we see that sin has nothing to do with our illness. For example, we pointed to the Old Testament example of Job. Job was not in egregious sin. He was being tested. Satan came and asked for permission to test someone, and God offered up Job. So it had nothing to do with egregious sin. And then we see in the New Testament where there's this gentleman who was blind from birth, and the apostles say, who was it that actually caused this man's blindness? Was it his parents' sin? Was it his sin? Mom? Dad? And Jesus, Jesus says, no, it was none of their sin. No one's sin. This man is blind so that in this moment the glory of God can be seen through his healing. And so sin, while it can contribute to sin, I don't want to set the table where we all leave thinking that every single piece of suffering is a result of something that I'm doing wrong. Because oftentimes, in many cases, it is not. It is, it is a trial. It is a test to see where your hope and where your trust lies. But nevertheless, we have to keep in mind, we have to evaluate our lives in all cases, especially evaluating our lives in, ter in terms of our relationships with one another. And so he prays, or James offers parting words of prayer. He says, if there is anyone among you who are suffering, is there anyone among you who are joyful, is there anyone among you who are sick, and all of the answers are the same, talk to the Lord. Pray, seek the Lord, rejoice and praise the Lord. Pray with faith to the Lord. And then he says this. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he gives us an example of a righteous person in Elijah. This righteous person, when you think about a righteous person, you should think about the things that we've just talked about. 
A righteous one who is walking in that righteousness is one who is seeking what? To remove all the prayer blockers, right? Those things that obstruct our prayers. Sin and toxic toxicity in our relationships with God and our relationships with one another. But you should, when you think about a righteous person, you should also think about one who is exhibiting the prayer enhancer, praying with faith and trusting that God is God and he can do whatever, whatever he desires to do and whenever he desires to do it. And such an example is Elijah. Elijah prays that rain would cease. And he prays it in accordance to the will of God and so, those, and so the rain stops. And when it's time for the rain to come again, in accordance to the will of God, Elijah prays that the rain would come. And the rain comes again. And this is what James says. He says, this is a man like you. If anyone, if anyone was to argue that, well, well, Elijah was different than me, God maybe listens a little closer to Elijah. James says in verse 17 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, the same way that God listened to Elijah's prayers. He's listening to yours. In the same way that he answered Elijah's prayers, he will answer yours. Are we pursuing to pray like Elijah, with faith, absent of the toxic toxicity that comes sometimes in our relationship with God and with others? He says if we pray in that manner, there is great power at work in your prayers. Lastly, I'll say this. James says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. How does one become righteous? One becomes righteous only through God. Only through Christ Jesus. Only through Christ Jesus. The Bible says in Romans 3 that, that none are righteous. No, not one is righteous. But that through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've been given righteousness that is outside of us. And so the, 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 the key to all of these things, the, 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 the clamp, so to speak, that brings all of these things together is our relationship, our saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Because there is no effectual prayer of righteousness without the righteousness that comes through Jesus. When you pray and you pray in Jesus' name, you are praying in Jesus' name as one that has trusted Jesus. You're not laying on top of your prayer some sort of incantation or some sort of spell. It is a prayer that is spoken to one who has become Lord and Savior of your life. And so the key to your prayers being answered is salvation through Christ. Because salvation in Christ gives us righteousness. Salvation in Christ gives us relationship with the one who answers our prayer. And so if you have not accepted and embraced Jesus as Lord, if you have not trusted him with 
with faith and turn from your way of living and turn to him in his way, then I invite you to do that today. If there are prayers in your life that are unanswered and you have not trusted Christ with your life, then before you take all the other steps that we mentioned this morning, I want to invite you to take that first one. I want to invite you to take the one that allows you to be called righteous so that when you pray prayers, that are, you pray prayers as a righteous person and those righteous prayers have great power in their working. So if you have not trusted Jesus, trust Jesus today. But for those of you who have trusted Jesus, pray with faith. Pray with faith. Pray with joy or enjoy, rejoice with faith. In suffering, cry out in faith. And trust and know that your Lord is listening. Let's pray.